As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So we have spent such a lot of today referring on air to all of the funny stuff that we've talked about off air on the programme. And then we've just basically had to restart the podcast because we can't put that bit in either. No. Uh, OK, but it's a shame that we can't. We're being uh, very secret squirrel. Well, I mean... <laughs> is that a stuffed squirrel? <laughs> secret stuffed squirrel. It's come back to me that there was... Um, and I woke up in the middle of the night the other night thinking about this. At Crosby Library, Crosby's the north of Liverpool suburb where I grew up, they also had like a taxidermy department. I'm sure I'm not imagining this. Where on the top floor of the library, there were lots of owls and birds. And I don't think they can't be there now, but I definitely used to go up there to have to have a look occasionally. So how long does your average bit of taxidermy last? Well, presumably they are... I mean, post-apocalypse, there'll still be stuffed animals around, won't mm. there? I think my sister had a Victorian raven for a while. Did she? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which had obviously hung around since Victorian times. I'll tell you what else has survived. That's the Knickerbocker glory. Uh, and I owe um, thanks to Susan, who says, just to allay your fears about the demise of the Knickerbocker glory, I've attached a photo of me enjoying one last summer after cycling to Burnham-on-Sea. I think I went there recently. Very nice. This one was called the Cadbury, as they did loads of different sorts. It was amazing, though I think I'm still buzzing from the sugar hit. Changing the subject completely in regarding creepy taxidermy, I've inherited my parents' 50-year-old stuffed ostrich foot ashtray. We lived in Africa and it was a different time, she says. Well, I think we, I think we can all agree on that. I can't put it out for recycling, says Susan, or give it to a charity shop. So it sits in my shed and I use it to put my coffee cup on. Can I have a look? It's on um, the back. It's on the back, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it's absolutely vile. I'm sorry, it's just horrendous. But I take I take Susan's point. What can she do with that? What can she oh, do? Oh, I it? see. So I was imagining. Oh, I don't know what I was imagining actually. But that's so. It's got the whole ostrich foot, and then a little bit of its paunch. Yeah, uh, and not... then there's an ashtray on top of that. You're absolutely right. No charity shop should have to face that. No. Nobody should have to face that, actually. No. Um, Good Lord. So very happy to see your image of the uh, Knickerbocker glory, uh, Susan, but we, we, don't want to, we don't want to see that stuffed ostrich foot ashtray ever again. She says, I'll leave it to my grown-up children to put in a bin bag when I'm gone. Maybe I'll pay for them both to have a Knickerbocker glory by way of compensation for the trauma. OK, right. yeah, so they don't have to have it. No, they don't Because that's a difficult thing, isn't it, when you're left something that is just really, really horrendous or completely inappropriate and out of time. Mm. Uh, but obviously you're left with the sense of guilt if you then chuck it out. 
loads of people must have thought. I mean, I have to be honest, some of the stuff that, you know, little bits and pieces that have come my way, mm. uh, I would really happily not have in my house, Jane, but I can't throw them out because yeah. I think, well, they've got well, some sentimental value from the person who left them to me, not for me. I'm happy to remember, you know, better times. Y yes, um, I've got to be honest, there is a table that my mum has in her hall that was her mother's that I've always imagined would be mine. But I, I need to you don't check... don't want it. I, I do. Oh. I, need, I need to just check in with her that she isn't going to leave it to anyone else. Oh, I see. You know, I well, no, you see, that's child. good. No, that's um, good. So I'm talking about the stuff that oh, you get Oh, I left actually, I do want this. That you don't want. And there's also a vase I really want. Should I tell her now, just to make it clear? We are such different people. Uh, can I just say hello to Nikki, uh, who's attached some uh, taxidermy. The first one is of a camel's head. The second one, no idea. Uh, but they came from a, a museum in Kuwait, uh, where her husband was on a nine-month course at the military academy in Kuwait a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, she went out to stay with them to explore the city. Uh, and found these delights in the Bayat Al Othman Museum. So bad, they're good. I don't know whether they are, no. Nikki. But we'll put those up on the Insta. It's Jane and Fee, uh, along with some of the other ones that we've received too. And actually, there just are quite a lot of very funny stories about taxidermy. Uh, there's this one, uh, which comes in from Carol, uh, who says, uh, the story I'd like to share is when I was driving our son and daughter, then probably around five, no, sorry, about seven and four years old, and I was entertained from the back seats by a long explanation our son was giving our amazed daughter about taxidermy. Presumably the information was from a Dawling Kindersley encyclopedia. Do you remember that? I do, yes. Anyway, it was all very detailed and involved lots of animals and finally a cat, to which after a short silence our daughter replied, but how did he hold the cat still while he stuffed it? Needless to say, the initial and fundamental part of the lecture had been missed. Uh, fun times, and uh, thanks for the rekindling well, of memories. Okay, um, presumably when an animal is subjected to taxidermy, yeah, um, th there's obviously, you have to take everything out, yes, but maintain the outer layer intact. Yes. Or, or do you, you sew it up again? In a, obviously a very highly skilled way. Well, I think that's the secret to it. But it's a good point whether you keep the skeleton. What what exactly what, are you taking out? That's a good point. I didn't I wish I could say I'd been clever enough to think about that, but I hadn't. No. We uh, don't do you know what we we absolutely don't need is a blow by blow account okay. of taxidermy the process. Uh, but if anybody else is intrigued as to how it happens, why don't you go and look it up on your own? <laughs> yes, I think perhaps that's not a bad idea. Can we just bring in Confuse Mel? Of course we can. I'm Hello, Confuse Mel. I'm trying to find where I can find your podcast for your book club for the first book, she says. She sounds like one of us, frankly. Well, where can Mel go to find the podcast for our first book club podcast? Well, if you go into our podcast feed on the Times app, yeah. then it'll be the Friday before last. Yeah. So if you're listening you to date. this, if you're listening to this, Melanie, you should be able to find it. Yeah. So wherever you found this, if yeah. you just go back to last Friday, but I'll get the proper date for you uh, while Jane reads another email. Well, back, actually, back with you in a sec. Yeah, I, on the subject of animals, I, I didn't get the chance to mention this um, during the Times Radio show today. But um, we often talk about the French and obviously we um, enjoyed 
well, Fee enjoyed um, the French novel we discussed in our first book club. Um, but this is a story from the Times today. Uh, French celebrities ride to the rescue of horses destined for dinner plates. And it's just about um, the French habit of eating horse meat. But it is something that's falling out of fashion in France. A recent study found that 7% of Fra French households still eat horse meat. But overall consumption has fallen by 15% uh, compared with 2021. Uh, the country counted 1,035 horse meat butchers in 2005, but just 307 in 2018. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that we, as a country, we don't eat horse meat. I think people did eat horse meat during World War II, possibly. People can tell me if I'm wrong. I think they probably did in the UK. We certainly don't do it routinely now. Not knowing it would be No, it would be highly unusual. It's just another example of, of cultural difference, which I, I'm not criticising anybody. I'm just interested in why that might be. Anyway, mm. it's falling out of fashion even in France. And have you seen the email about... We were talking yesterday about guns in America. Have you seen the oh, email about Texas? Yeah, I really like that one. Uh, can I just uh, do Mel a favour? Was it Mel who wanted yes. to know? Uh, well, okay, so uh, the book club uh, episode was on the 28th of July. You'll find it sandwiched between uh, one called Capers in the Basement and another one called It's Been Ages Since I Measured Mine. Uh, and because we don't tend to, we don't go in for numbers, do we? So no. I'm just trying to point you in the right direction. 28th of July is the one that you want. Book club, fresh water for flowers. Yes. Okay. Um, so um, Fee yesterday interviewed uh, a Texan. Was he a Texan businessman? He was based in Kansas, right. and he was called Tom Holland, and he was president of a firearms manufacturing company. Okay. And it was it was a sort of cultural. Well, uh, we just didn't understand where he was coming from. No. He seemed a perfectly pleasant man, which. Actually made it even more chilling to be perfectly honest he had come up with a weapon that could be personalized to the extent that it could essentially only be used by its legal owner is that correct yeah so it's called a user authenticated gun right. where the user has to be wearing a ring and then the ring transmits a kind of unlocked thing to the gun and then you can shoot it if you're wearing the ring well i'm very grateful to katrina who's emailed to say i am so anti-guns i used to remove the tiny weapons from my kids lego and playmobile sets but after years working for the British branch of a Texan company, I know many lovely, family-orientated colleagues who believe passionately in the Second Amendment and see it as an important rite of passage to teach their children about gun safety. During one of my visits to our Texan headquarters, a colleague, uh, keen to convince a sceptical European of the joys of gun ownership, invited the team to his home. He and his wife sent the kids out to play and laid out their household firearms collection in size order on the lounge carpet. The 20 or so items range from a small white handgun, his wedding gift to his wife, to fairly major hunting rifles. And after debating the merits of each, everyone chose a couple of them to try at the local shooting range. I mean, I'm... I'm Really baffled by this. I had pictured something more high security, says Katrina, but the range felt a bit like a bowling alley, except the groups chatting, laughing and competing for the highest score were holding guns. If anyone got too animated and started waving a gun around in the direction of other people, as a group of teenagers in the adjacent lane kept doing, they were asked over the tannoy to calm down, but otherwise we were left to it. 
I was surprised by how much I viscerally hated holding and firing even the smallest gun. And despite swapping my person-shaped target for a, no a more neutral dartboard circle, I still found the whole thing stressful and disturbing. I mean, I can't... There's somebody who's actually been there and has experienced, as she says, hospitality yeah. from a, a, an apparently very decent and caring family. But it's just weird, isn't it? Well, it is. And uh, do you know, when I was uh, travelling around America, uh, this was a while back, so I don't know whether the company still exists, there was a chain of restaurants called Burgers and Bullets. And the deal that you had was that you could go and uh, shoot a gun at a firing range and then eat your burger afterwards. And the whole thing is just so wrapped up uh, in a mindset about enjoyment that I'm just never going to be able to fathom because it's absolutely tied in. Those two things are tied in together. I'm going to eat my meat. I'm going to fire my gun. Uh, you know, <laughs> welcome to our chain of restaurants. <laughs> it's just, I, I just love this paragraph as well. She says, under Texan state law, companies can stop employees or customers from bringing their guns inside, but they cannot prevent anyone from leaving a gun in their car all day even in a workplace car park, as long as the car is locked. This led to the surreal situation until our HR department finally realised it wasn't relevant globally, where in order to pass the mandatory annual health and safety refresher, employees from Dublin to Tokyo had to dutifully promise to keep our handguns locked in our glove compartments while we were at work. It's an open secret, though, that many in the Texas office believe their right to bear arms overrides a company's right to ban them indoors. And I'm always aware when I'm over there that I'm working in close proximity to a substantial number of guns concealed in holsters. Mm. So that's the thing, isn't it, that in so many Just parts incredible. of America, uh, well, especially in the open carry states, uh, you know, you... Uh, it's not something that you can avoid. You would know who's carrying a gun. You'll be very well aware of how big that gun was. And it's odd because I have to say that, um, you know, just spending time in Manhattan, when I lived there for a while, I never saw a gun. I never heard, uh, I didn't hear anyone firing a gun. I didn't feel that I was very close to guns at all. But it's not all one country. <laughs> That big America? No, no, it isn't. I mean, my ignorance about the country. I, I, every time I hear something about America, I realise how little I know about You're it. You're never truly. going to go, are you? Again, I know uh, you've been. Probably not. No, I don't think you will, will you? No, uh, well, no. Don't, don't you no, find... Don't... Sometimes I realise that there, are, there, there's now so little of the world that I will ever visit. I'm not sure I ever thought that I would, but mm. I know now I'm never going to go to Australia. It just feels too far away and I'm never going to go to South America for the same reason and I'm not sure that I'll be going to the States again either. Um, uh, can we just talk about somebody who had an incident with her in-laws on holiday? <laughs> Does it end well or badly? Well, it ends interestingly and they laugh about it now. Uh, and we're still getting these, by the way. And do if you're on holiday with your family now and you've snuck out to listen to this or perhaps you're listening last thing at night, having spent a, a day in the passive-aggressive company with <laughs> of people to whom you are sort of related you know, like DNA adjacent, um, you might well be able to relate to this. Just over 20 years ago, we took our then 10-month-old baby on a mini-break with in-laws, my in-laws says. We won't mention her name. A lovely but tiny cottage on the Dorset coast, just the one bathroom. That is the real danger. That's when a klaxon 
goes off. It's that awful feeling at Christmas in a house with just the one bathroom where somebody, not always a man, though often, emerges from the bathroom, (laughs) shuts the door and says that (laughs) ominous sentence. Let's leave it for a while. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, our correspondent says, one morning I just couldn't get into the bathroom. My mother-in-law was in there for an age and I was desperate. Because I was desperate, I had no choice but to make my deposit in a rather undignified manner into a muslin square in our bedroom. And I then hastily deposited the whole thing in a nappy sack. I tried to sneak out the nappy sack to the outside bin, only to be met with a chorus of, goodness me, is that smell from my adorable little grandson? My mother-in-law took her grandson out of my arms, whilst I let him take all the blame for the dense fog that hung in the air on the landing outside the bedroom. I managed to pop the nappy sack into the outside bin, and I didn't mention anything for the rest of the holiday. I did tell my husband on the drive home, and we laughed our heads off and never looked at a muslin square in quite the same way again. Thank you to our correspondent for that rather revolting story. Uh, But I do love the idea of you standing there with all your dignity, holding the nappy sack (laughs) with the muslin square and your own deposit. I often thought the smell of the scented nappy sacks was worse than the bloody contents. There is no other scent known to mankind (laughs) as repulsive as that, you're right. Absolutely. Anyway, um, thank you. Thank you for that. If you can beat that, and I'm not certain anybody will be able to, uh, but I do, I always think it's if you can occupy a property with more than one bathroom when you have a lot of people staying mm. it's it's definitely the preferred option and i would say definitely when you've got kids because also there's that very difficult thing of you know if a kid has had a little bit of an accident on the bathroom floor then they're not your kids as the grown up do you just automatically clear it up or do you go and get the other parent and say your child's just done that oh I've never known what to do. I've always done the latter, but I suspect the look in some of my friends' eyes has suggested I should have done the former. Uh, Have you ever tried those poo pellet things? You know the things that you're meant to put in after you've had a poo? They're actually called poo pellets. Are they? And they freshen up the whole area. Uh, I haven't. No. But I might order some. Yeah, I think I, I definitely... Are got, they environmentally friendly, though? I've got your Christmas present now. Oh, uh, I'm sure you will as well. Can, yeah, no, I'm sure yeah. you can find some. OK. Right. Uh, can I just chuck out that question about not travelling to our lovely Antipodean audience and our audience yeah. all over the world? Because I don't mean it... I don't think either of us mean it offensively. I think I'm partly bearing in mind, um, you know, the do I... Does the climate need me to fly to yeah. somewhere like us? I think unlikely. America, I, I just don't feel any more that... And I desperately wanted to go. I remember longing to go and loving my first couple of trips there. Um, But I don't know. I'm not sure it calls me at the moment. No. So I'd be interested to know what our international listeners, uh, especially the ones in midlife, feel about long-haul travel from their necks of the woods. Mm. Because maybe you look at Europe now and you just think, well, maybe you look at this country and you just think, what's the point in going there? 
Don't say anything. Come on. <laughs> rally, rally. Come on, everybody in Britain. <laughs> we can do it. Uh, this one comes from Rebecca, who says, uh, thank you for all the chat that keeps me company on my work commutes from Hampshire, Medstead, near Alsford, which female... Well, I do know. I've got a lovely aunt who lives in Medstead. Uh, and you're going from Hampshire to London. Not every day, surely. Well, I think so. And while I do the never-ending weeding that the summer rain has necessitated this year... Uh, Rebecca says, I write to you in defence of the Jack Russell feet. You describe them as ankle biters, which I can't completely disagree with. And yes, they are very vocal when people and dogs enter their orbit. But there's so much more. My Jack Russell, Barbara. Oh, I know. Is joy personified, ball obsessed, has two speeds, flat out or flat out, is endlessly fascinated with squirrels and pigeons and is velvet to the touch. Aww. Barbara loves a cuddle and is the best companion through life. Photograph of Barbara attached for information. Her visual quirks include a googly eye and stumpy teeth from yes. all the ball chasing, but we couldn't love her more. And the terrible thing is, Rebecca, we've had so many pictures of taxidermy. When I was going through all of the emails earlier on today, you thought I Barbara put this was to the top, top of the pile as a fantastic example of taxidermy. It's gone very well. But I think she looks lovely. Barbara is living and breathing, Barbara. Great, great choice of a name. Uh, and in the interests of balance, Rebecca tells us that she's also got a dashen called Margot. Margot and Barbara. Well, and that's great, but I think the name Margot is making a little bit of a comeback, isn't it? Huge comeback. Yeah. Well, we've got a colleague, haven't we? Yeah, it's, quite, it's quite the fashion yeah. to call baby girls Margot. And do you think that's after Margot Robbie? Oh, I suppose it must be. <laughs> yes. I was at the cinema only last night, in fact. Oh, you better do your quick bar oh, your well, Barbie actually, the, roundup. Well, thing. I will. I mean, I should say that um, the cinema was nicely busy, which I do think is lovely because I do love going to. I, there's something about the collective experience of, uh, which is unbeatable for me. Um, but, and there was also a bit of an incident, uh, which everybody in the cinema loves because some people had sneaked in and they hadn't got a ticket and security came in and threw them out uh, and heads were turned and people going, oh, I mean, you just can't beat a thing like that. There's just like the minor kerfuffle. But had they tried to sit in someone's pre-booked seats or they... No, no, they just hadn't. They hadn't paid. They just wandered in. They just, just wandered in. I mean, there. I think it's not uncommon in a multiplex oh, yeah. to try your hand at getting into a number of different films. Well, I think the kiddies do that, don't they? they I buy something that's got a 15. They were. And then they sneak in. They were younger mm. people. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know why I've done that accent. No, I don't so know sorry. why either. And um, I, as you know, I'm no critic of the arts, but I would say that I only gave Barbie 7 out of 10. My daughter said it was hilarious uh, and she certainly did laugh more than me. I did laugh. Um, I thought it was a little bit flabby and I thought if it had been 90 minutes, I'd have enjoyed it much, much more. Sorry. I think it was only an hour 34. That felt longer. So it was 94 minutes. So you're saying that no, if it had been four minutes less, I, I'm I not sure. I think it was longer than that. Sure. Sure. I, I definitely longer. felt it was really padded. Okay. You know, the well, bit with the older lady and stuff. I'm yeah. Gonna... Well, I'm sorry that you didn't enjoy all of it because I, I really loved every moment of it. Well, I listen, I mean, lost what, myself. Greta in it. Gerwig uh, directed Little Women with Timothee Chalamet, uh, which is by some margin one of my favourite films of you the see, last. I didn't really like that. Oh, you didn't like that? You said, I love that. Yeah. I love that film. That's our kind of place of safety in our house to watch Little Women. And did you see the trailer for Wonka? No. Oh, yeah. Well, that was on with Barbie last night. I love trails. Um, didn't see the ads because... So, through. Wonka as in... Willy. Willy Wonka. Yeah. So, who's doing that? Timothée Chalamet. Oh. Is... oh, do you 
you not like him? No, not really, actually. But I, I, you know me, I like a chunk. Well, I, I know he does look as though a, not even a stiff breeze would blow him over. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he wouldn't survive the English summer, I'll tell you that much. Uh, but I've got a bit of a soft spot for him. His hair always looks like it might need a wash. <laughs> There's something about that that for some reason I find strangely appealing. Really? Yeah, no, just, oh, lordy. You are just one of those things. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say that, you know, I don't mind a bald man and I've said I like a chunk and that leads us very nicely into Greg Wallace. We've oh. just got to just do one sentence on Greg Wallace's Miracle Meat because we were promising people all the way through the podcast last week. Uh, what, what, why, what, did, what did you like well, about it? I think Greg Wallace, his homage to Jonathan Swift is something that everybody should watch. I really do. You better explain the reference for well, our international I mean, audience. To be honest, I um, this Miracle Meat documentary, which Channel 4 made, uh, features my televisual bet noir and indeed fees as well, Greg Wallace, who's a man who has, to me, almost no redeeming features. <laughs> I don't know if you can think of any. Uh, he often is seen uh, mooching around Britain's workplaces in a hairnet, uh, gurning and asking daft questions and saying silly things. Uh, but he's made a fortune, so, I mean, who's having the last laugh? Greg Wallace, I would imagine. Uh, and he's made this mockumentary for Channel 4 in the UK about a factory that uh, uses human flesh to create an economical and tasty meat product. And it only dawned on me about halfway through that it reminded me of something and it was something that we was vaguely referenced when I was at university, which is Jonathan Swift's Modest Proposal, which was a satirical essay about an horrendous potential solution to solve the potato famine, which some people took as rather a good idea when he'd obviously not intended it to be anything other than the most biting satire. Right, which is basically uh, cannibalism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but it's a measure of just how despicable some people were at the time that they thought they thought let's hop on board. That. He was on to something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so um, this documentary, mockumentary, did take some people by surprise, and they honestly thought it was real. And there were letters, notably, I think, to the Daily Mail perhaps not read by Britain's most informed folk, let's be honest, uh, who were horrified by Greg Wallace's participation in this show because they thought it might be real. I just thought it was rubbish. He just well. went beyond Gurn so early. <laughs> you could just tell it wasn't true. Uh, I would just like to say hello to Mary. You don't have a different deadlock. The deadlock that you've been watching is indeed, as you say, a hilarious, extremely crude police parody set in Tasmania. Uh, thank you for the lovely pictures of you and your grandchildren. Uh, and your daughter, and it was very nice to hear from you. OK, and a quick mention as well to Iris, to whom we wished a happy birthday yesterday. Um, she just wanted to mention the longest ever match at Wimbledon. Um, it lasted 11 hours and five minutes, spread over three days, and the score in the final set, can you believe this, was 70-68. Wow. Thank you for that, Iris, and uh, continue having a wonderful birthday, uh, which has gone on for some time now. And we did say we'd do this, so I want to mention this email briefly before we get to our guest, who is Laura Whitmore today. Um, we asked about what it was like to be in a lesbian relationship with an age gap when you get to around the time of the menopause, 
And our correspondent says, my partner is 15 years older than me and has been having menopausal symptoms for 11 years, hasn't been fun for her, and the duvet is on and off our bed many times a night. I believe my own menopause will start in possibly seven years and if one is to follow the pattern of my partner's ever-suffering elderly mother who claims still to have the occasional sweat, we may both have that symptom at the same time in the future. My partner's teenagers live with us full-time and, lovely as they are, puberty has collided somewhat with her menopause. We both have demanding careers that require being in public under spotlights, real, not figurative. And my partner can report seeing a pool of hot flush-related sweat on the floor surrounding her on many an occasion at the end of a stressful night's work. I am dreading the arrival of this symptom in my own working life, which has enough jeopardy as it is. I tell you what, there are some questions to ask there about what it is they're both doing. Um, perhaps something in the thespian world? What yes, do you think? definitely in the performative area. Yeah. But I suppose we should say it doesn't, you know, no, everyone's... Must, absolutely, it doesn't symptoms it? It are, are different. Might and, not be that bad. Yes, and yeah. I hope it isn't. I hope it isn't. But it's such a good point, I think, especially because so many... Uh, People have children a little bit later in life, that collision of menopause and puberty, but also early onset menopause, perimenopause as well, just after you've had your kids. Uh, so toddlers and perimenopause, I think, is a really common uh, flashpoint, isn't it? Well, you know, if you have a... I mean, I had my, my daughter when I was 39, and I was definitely... Uh, perimenopausal by my early 40s. Do you think you were? Oh, yes, very much so. Because I think I hit all of mine quite early because I came through it all quite early. Because I'm five years younger than you and probably sailed out of it at the same time as you. Oh, I know. It's not competition. I think I'm on choppy waters still myself. Do you? Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, let's get to Laura Whitmore. Laura Whitmore uh, is... I really enjoyed meeting her, actually. I'd never met her before. I've heard a lot of her work. I, I used to listen to her on Five Live, uh, where she did the weekend show for a while. And I think in this country, she is definitely best known for hosting a couple of series of Love Island. Uh, but she's yes. done a lot in the entertainment I was going to say, she? she's possibly a, a more serious individual than some people might have given her credit for. Yeah, because she's done the I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, backroom kind of shows and all of that. But she studied journalism at Dublin City University and she has made a uh, mini-series of documentaries about some of the really dark stuff of our times. So there are three programmes. One is about rough sex, one is about cyber-stalking and one is about the incel movement. Uh, we started by asking her if she felt a little sense of having to justify her involvement in the documentaries because most people know her in the entertainment sphere. Yeah, and I think when you work on entertainment shows, and I, I love entertainment shows, I like watching a broad range of shows, hence why I've worked on a, a large amount, but you don't necessarily have the space or capacity, um, ability or permission to kind of go as deep as you'd like to in some topics. And you get to do a lot of like five-minute quick interviews and... These topics which you mentioned there are, are something which I feel are very relevant now, particularly to maybe the audiences that I've had over the years. And I wanted to maybe get back to 
to where I started off in a newsroom and ask those questions in a space that allowed it. Mm. And you are an associate producer on this series too, so it's not as if you have just come along and, you know, uh, put on the makeup and asked the questions. And I know it was important to you to have an all-female crew as well. Did you manage that in the end? Yeah, as much as possible. I also felt there was an irony there, particularly with incels, when I went to... I I travelled to the UK and over to America um, and other locations where I interviewed uh, men who call themselves incels, involuntary celibate men, who basically, and this is how they define themselves on blogs, hate women. So I felt like there was something there of a fact of having an all-female crew in those rooms was important because uh, for my own personal power, but also just to see what the reaction was. So that was, it was intentional, but also they were the best people for the job too. Mm. I think what the three documentaries do as a whole is make you realise how vulnerable women still are. Would mm. you agree? Yeah, definitely. And and something that I got out of it too are how vulnerable men can be as well. A lot of men who I found, particularly on the incel one, mm. but as well in cyberstalking, um, and I'm not condoning any of the views because um, I found it very hard to sit through a lot of those interviews, but a lot of lonely men who are finding this community online and being radicalised by a small group of people. And this toxic masculinity, um, it starts from a young age. It's about how we talk about each other, how men talk about women, how women talk about women. And it's much bigger than just, uh, I, I feel entertainment shows I've worked on in the past, I get asked that question about toxic masculinity in quite a throwaway manner and I'd have about 20 seconds to answer it and I couldn't. <laughs> so I wanted to go further into it. So yes, women are vulnerable and men are vulnerable and yeah. it's let's talk about this. And for me, it was very important to talk to people I didn't agree with, which yeah. is hard. Yes, of course, of course. And you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm really glad you've used the term radicalisation because I think uh, in this country, not enough is known about the incel movement mm-hmm. or the damage that's being done by people who want to distort the minds of young men. Mm-hmm. They're not bad young men in Mm-mm. the first place, but mm-hmm. as you say... They are men who feel that they don't have anywhere to go on the surface. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in these dark web chat rooms, I mean, it is horrendous. Can you give us a flavour of that? Yeah, well, I I went deep within these blogs and looked through them. And you kind of need your own lexicon to kind of go through it. There's a different language between Stacey's and Chad's and how they talk about different people. So a Stacey is a stereotypical beautiful woman, a Chad almost like a Ken doll. Um, and once you kind of get through that, the, you can see the language used. And just r- tell everybody what the other term for a woman is. I can't remember it myself now. There are Stacey's and is it Becky's? Oh, there's Becky's, Becky's. If you're, if you're, if you're the it's, there's so there's so many things that contradict each other, and that's why I couldn't get my head around because a lot of incels on these blogs are saying how women, are, you know, are very uh, materialistic, and you know everything comes down to the aesthetic. Well, how they speak about women is that. So Becky is meant to be like a plain girl and Stacey is like a beautiful girl. And and also the hate towards each other, um, the use of suicide language um, and, and men being told they're not good enough and that's why they will never find a woman. And there's two types of men. There's the red pill and the black pill. I won't go too much into detail. It's all in, in the doc. But it's, you know, the difference really is hope or hopelessness. And the more I got into it, I had to get my head around it to kind of understand what this language was, but it's dark. Like people telling, men telling other men that they don't belong in this world anymore. 
Um, and, you know, blogs can be shut down, but then they're reopened again. And online isn't monitored. It's not monitored the way it should be. We don't understand it. Social media platforms don't understand what they've created. And it's changing quicker than we can keep up with it. And it's scary. Mm. I, it's scary. I'm online and I don't... But hard of me wants to stay off it. You can't stay off it because it's everywhere. It's, everything online has spilled over into real life. Can we talk a bit about the cyber stalking yeah. episode as well, which I found fascinating? Uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your own experience with being stalked. Yeah, again, stalking is a word that feels quite common and familiar. We use it um, in such a blasé way with I faced Facebook stalked that person. And we have this image of stalking back in the day of like a man in a bush. And particularly if you're in a, you know, a public facing job, that there may be some degree of that. That's what I was told when I had a problem, when I went looking for help, that you just get used to it. This is part of it, which of course it's not. And this isn't just about people in this industry. This is everyone. So a lot of victims I spoke to had been stalked by ex-partners, um, cyber stalked in particular, and I'll get into that, um, by work colleagues. And stalking isn't the way it used to be. It's, it's not an easy thing to detect. And some of the common things that were happening, particularly to one woman who I interviewed anonymously, was happening over the, a period of two years. So in isolation, it doesn't seem like a big thing. So, for example, um, an ex-work colleague managed to get her passwords and was doing little things over a long time. So went into her Facebook, deleted her wedding pictures got into her, uh, I think, delivery or just eat app and ordered a hot and spicy pizza at 2am to her house. I've had ex-partners where they can control the temperature in the house because of all these smartphones and smart yeah. apps. I found that so frightening. But you can't go to the police and say, my house is too hot at 2am. Do you know what I mean? It, it, you can't, it's really hard to pinpoint it's just this. the calculated nature yeah. of it, isn't it? Yeah. It's so and, weird. And the time spent. Yeah. yeah. There was one case, wasn't there, where the stalker had tried every single available social media platform and mm. form of communication and been blocked, so had started to send money so accounts. that he could write something unpleasant in the reference box for you that can't, money. Yeah, you can't stop someone putting money into your bank account so they were putting one penny into the bank account and then obviously you can write a little yeah. message and they were you know and it can be something that is really hard to detect but it could be a trigger word that you know it's that person that would be so frightening Laura, yeah that's it? really common i ended up talking to the cheshire stalking unit and they said that's one of the most common ways you can't just block people the way you used to and i feel like i don't want to like scare people but these are things that you kind of have to keep out a look for yourself because mm. no one else can help you. And also I think it's very telling to sometimes live in the detail because you're right, when you say stalking, you know, perhaps it's become something that we just kind of go, oh yes, and I know what that story's going to be. Mm. But actually we don't know what the individual stories are and the harm that's being done. Uh, one of the things I was very struck by was the stalking unit because actually the amount of work that experts have put into understanding mm. the psychology of stalking is hugely important, isn't it? In being able to then identify who's like likely to do this before it gets mm -hmm. too far. And why they do it. And also to work with the stalker. Um, there's, you know, it, it seems, you know, obviously the victim is number one, but also work with the stalker because a lot of stalkers reoffend. There was one woman who I interviewed um, who's a BBC presenter who had a stalker who she managed to charge. She got the evidence. Um, we couldn't name him because he's actually currently going through an, another court case where he's been stalking someone else. So the likelihood of reoffending, offending um, and, and, and so how do we stop that happening as well? 
uh, and also be as a stalker being able to identify you are stalking. Yes, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. That, well, you they know, refused to acknowledge that that's what they well, were doing. Well, a lot doing. believe they're in a relationship with that person right. or, that, or that they want it in, in some way. And it's uh, one of the things I learned was like, you're better off not having any interaction whatsoever with them because they want some sort of reaction. Mm. Um, and, and again, this is just as anyone. I, I couldn't believe how many people, this is just from within a workplace, within a neighbourhood. Um, and it's... Most people who were able to get some sort of help had to compile the evidence themselves mm. and bring it forward to the police. So there, there does seem to be an enormous uh, uh, chain between a stalker and their victim through mm. different technologies or social media platforms or whatever it is. Are you left thinking that actually there is just so much more that those companies could be doing? Yeah. We use them to block, but actually they're witnesses to something, aren't they, as well? Yeah, and a lot of these t- things we have in our home, I mean, myself included to make your life better mm. to make your life easier you know the alexa and the hey google and all these different things and i want to be able to turn the heating up in my house or another thing um with uh, alexas uh, you know you can have your spotify account connected and ex-partners were playing songs in the house that would trigger Ooh. Oh, you know, it's like a horror film. Actually, I don't want to give people ideas. Don't want to give people ideas, but but also it's really important that you can recognise that if something like that is happening to you, you do have rights. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the law is there to protect you. But is there anything that the law can do to make those companies a little bit more helpful, so that yeah. they could actually be pushing something back to the perpetrator to mm-hmm. say, "We know what you're doing." Well, I've been calling for this for a long time. I think anonymity online and privacy online, there's a level where I think anyone can set up an account and say what they like. And I think we, there's definitely something to say, and and I don't know how they're going to do that, but there's some way where we should be able to see, they shouldn't be faceless people. A lot of comments wouldn't be said if we could see who was saying it. Um, I think being able to give this information up to the police, as you mentioned, stalking unit are brilliant. They're in Cheshire. There's very few of them in this country. So when I had my experience in London, I think I was kind of laughed at. They're like, what are we going to do for you? Um, I think you're very lucky that the first call out that someone recognises it as stalking or harassment and know that the law is there to protect you. And yours uh, was a case that you eventually didn't have to take to court or you did? I just got on with it, which isn't the right way either. And there's, that's another reason why I want to now at this stage of my life and career, talk about things which I've been told to not talk about in the past to kind of just get on with it and suck it up Hmm. um, because we shouldn't have to. Do you ever uh, put any kind of, not blame, that's too strong a word, Mm. do you put anything on yourself that you've chosen to be on television, to be very visible, to be very out there and, and actually... If all of this danger might lurk there for you, you would just be safer if you removed yourself from that. Definitely has crossed my mind. And then I've talked to all these other women who aren't in my profession who have had similar experiences. So I don't think... I don't think it's me or other people has to change. I think those who are doing it have to But it's to a stop. dreadful conversation, isn't it, to have to have with yourself that you might not be allowed to have the career that you would like to have because, because the danger lurks out there. For me, Fee, the hardest thing is the people who haven't chosen it in my life, i.e. my family, um, particularly with certain shows that I've worked on that I'm very protective of my child because I can't, she hasn't chosen to have me as a mother or being on television or my mother or my father in Ireland. You know, I, I don't... So they have to... You know, people know who their daughter is at home, particularly Ireland's a small country, and they haven't chosen it. So I find more 
protective over that going, oh, I've kind of invited this into their life. Or if I'm working on a big show and I accept that job, I know it's going to come with stuff that I can maybe take on, but maybe they can't. Mm. So that, that I find difficult. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com We should say, Laura, just congratulations on an absolutely superb, stellar career uh, in the entertainment business and over at Five Live and in many other capacities because so far we've just dwelt on the dark. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I'm actually quite fun, I'll have you know. Oh, are I'm you? I'm great fun on, <laughs> on a the, night out. On the quiet. On the quiet. Um, now, I saw Barbie last night and I've just remembered the bit because I've been a bit sort of, you know, okay, it was good, but it wasn't perhaps as good as I thought it might be. Anyway, uh, there's a bit, in, isn't there, in Barbie, back me up here, where I think it's the young girl, the daughter of the woman who's destroyed mm-hmm. her Barbie in the real world yeah. who says uh, that men hate women and women also hate women Yeah, and um, there was a definite moment in the cinema last night when she yeah. said those because I, I think we all recognised it and yeah. I hate that inbuilt misogyny that if we're honest, almost every woman in the world has. Yeah. Uh, and we are, so we're a part of all this, aren't we? And we've got to stop it. Definitely. And that's one of the things I hope comes across in in the episodes as well, that we all have a duty of how we talk about each other, mm. how we raise our children. Um, I think for women, most in most careers, in most high-powered, money-making careers, it's very competitive. And in the past, there's only been a place for one woman or few women. Mm. So you've kind of been put against each other. Even how the papers talk about women. I started my career where I was like, who wore it best? And I never really saw that for men. I was compared by what I was wearing. And it started off, and it seems like such a frivolous manner, but actually... That's where it starts Mm -hmm. and it builds and builds. So how did you feel sometimes on Love Island, which is a programme that plays into some of the crevices of uh, misogyny, but also women on women betrayal? Women on women, men on men. Yeah, everything. But also, well, for me as well, I think any television show, particularly reality show, shouldn't be what we compare life to be. And it's not the responsibility of a reality show to raise us or raise our children or tell them what they should do. Um, I do think it definitely brought up topics. And as a, I, I don't want to speak as a producer in that show. I, I came into that show in a very surreal mm. situation, literally trying to survive it. Um, but also, I watched reality television. Mm. I watched Barbie and I liked it. 
Oh, I liked it. I, I loved it too. I, I believe it. it's I'm been quite to say that. No, um, no, no, don't. I really, be. I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the questions. And mm. I think, I think maybe shows like reality shows they bring up questions and they start a conversation and a narrative where maybe it goes, I don't agree with that, but that's great. Identify you don't agree with it and let's talk about it and why we don't. And I also think that show is changing constantly over the last few years. But again, I don't, or have never had a producing role in that show. So no, it only comes with so much that one I can do. I put it to you that you probably wouldn't want your daughter to take part, would you? I don't think she would. <laughs> I mean, I, I know she's very young. She's very, know. yeah, I, I don't think she would. Also, but would you want her to? I wouldn't want her to do anything that she doesn't want to do. I think going on a show like that, I think personally I wouldn't do the show as a contestant, which I've said before because I'm probably not that confident to be in a bikini all day. I'm definitely not that confident to be in a I don't like the sun that much. <laughs> well, you are Irish, after <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You SPF have a very 50. pale skin there. <laughs> do you know Laura, what I mean? Yeah. So I like look after the skin, got to look after the skin. I'll be in the shade with my big hat. Um... So, yeah, there are many ways. So I think it's a funny question because people will ask you that question to see what you say and what that what that means in the bigger picture. Um, I, well, I can say, I mean, I've watched Love Island yeah. with my kids. There's yeah. no way I would have wanted either of them to take part in it. Yeah. Uh, I just would have said, no, absolutely not. But did we sit there and watch it? Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, we're all in this, aren't yeah. we? Um, while we were talking about misogyny, and I don't mean to ask you this just because you're Irish, although you are Irish, and you have a connection to Bray. I'm from Bray, yeah. My yeah. mum lives in Bray. Right, yeah. and that's, of course, where Sinead O'Connor's funeral has taken place today, and yeah. lots of people lying My mum is on the street She's in Bray there. today, okay. yeah. But, you know, misogyny played a part in the way Sinead was treated, didn't it? A oh, completely. Huge impact. And also, it's that thing now where people are saying so many great things about Sinead, and I just hope they said it to her when she was alive as well. Is that mm. thing we always tend to remember and say all these things, like actually say it to people when they're alive. And Sinead spoke up before a lot of people spoke yeah. up on a lot of issues. When it came to misogyny in the music industry, when it came to the Sexual Catholic abuse, Church, yep. um, and the and the the backlash she got for speaking up, and then years later then everything comes out. But she spoke about that before anyone else. She went to a Magdalene, Magdalene um, institution. So she had firsthand experience of what it was like for a young girl then. But for me, as Laura, growing up in Ireland, in 90s Ireland, she was everything. Because she was a rock star and she was doing things that other women weren't doing. She was on the cover of Rolling Stones. She ha had a voice. She shaved her hair off. She shaved her shaved her hair off. And I was like, yeah, anyone could do it. Not me, weird shaped head. But <laughs> I, yeah. So for me, I, I tried to think of, for me, I remember the good. Um, and I remember how outspoken she was. And if anything, it gives me a bit of a push going... She put her. It was. It's hard because she didn't have an easy life because of that. Mm. Yeah, and she had a very conflicted relationship with her own fame, didn't she? Yeah. She could. She recognised really early on how corrosive it was going to be for her. And she did things her way. Yeah, but she needed it to keep going. You yeah. Know, that's just the the deal that you do if you're making the music, isn't it? And it's that thing as well. And I've had it in my career, obviously to a lesser degree, but other people I know too. It's like, do you say something now or do you wait until you have the power? to say something. I'm in a situation now, ten years over 10 years in, where I feel much stronger than I did when I started out in the industry to speak out about things because I probably just wouldn't have got another yeah. job. And make documentaries like these. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to a young man uh, who is listening to the three of us have this conversation who just thinks, you don't understand my world. I'm mm. not saying this young man will become a cyber stalker or, you know, join the incel 
movement. Mm. But something starts, doesn't it? And it's usually for men, mm. feeling detached from everything that we're talking about, that their yeah. voice isn't being heard. How do you draw someone like that in? I'm still trying to work that out. I remember during lockdown, um, particularly you know, when you could only be outside for like an hour in the day and when it was coming up to where the evenings were getting shorter mm. and if the, like the sun would go down at four o'clock and I remember one day to my husband going, oh, it's dark now, I can't go for a run or go outside and he'd go for a run at midnight, no bother to him. Yeah. And I think one day he turned to me and he went, I'm not going to curse now, but that's, you know, that, that's that rubbish. Is, yeah. That's rubbish for you. But anyway, off I go. Yeah, I know. And I don't think people recognise that enough. No. That women's lives are still a bit limited. And even the, you know, I get home from a night out with my girlfriends. We all text each other, are you home safely? Are you home safely? Yeah. And Ian's like, oh, that's lovely. That's me. Don't do that. I'm like, because you don't have to probably the same way statistically mm. that as a woman, it's almost ingrained. That's just how you behave. If you're walking home at night and a man's behind you, you cross over to the other side of the road. Um, so maybe just an awareness in that way. And it's hard to be aware for something that doesn't affect you. Uh, and I'd say, as a man, watch the docs. And it's not about tearing down men or tearing down women. or it, It's just having a conversation and starting a conversation. Yeah. Laura Whitmore, our guest this afternoon. And if you want to watch those documentaries, uh, I would say the one on cyber stalking I found really, really interesting. Uh, they're available on ITVX. Yeah, uh, very interesting programmes, actually. They really are. Um, I should say tomorrow's guest is Liz O'Riordan, who is a surgeon uh, who operated or operates quite a lot on women with breast cancer and has herself been through it. Indeed, she's just discovered that she has it again. So uh, Liz O'Riordan is a very interesting guest tomorrow. Um, she'll talk about what it's like as a woman surgeon. I mean, it's still relatively rare and it's not easy to make it as a surgeon. It can be a slightly challenging world. I think that might be the understatement of the year. Uh, so a lot to discuss with Liz tomorrow and I appreciate that perhaps some of you will have your own uh, breast cancer experiences. So that is tomorrow on the live show and indeed with us here on Off Air. And that's it from us for tonight. We've gone very professional there, haven't yeah, we? Very, very good evening. Quite slick-ish. You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com